Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are picking back up with our deep dive into The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, Season 1. If you missed the beginning of our conversation, be sure to go back and check out episode 101, starting around the 25-minute mark. And just like last time, blanket spoilers for the entirety of The Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power, Season 1, along with occasional spoilers for The Lord of the Rings books and movies. Whatever segment, we still need to come up with a name for it, where I read way too much philosophy and theology into this work (laughs) of a very secular company, Amazon, by no means living out Catholic social teaching or any other kind of Catholic teaching. (laughs) But in this case, I think the writers have managed to sneak in as much as they can. Okay. All right. My skeptic, my skeptical (laughs) glasses are on, but hit me. (laughs) All right. Well, actually, we start out in the West because we see Galadriel as a child and adult Galadriel has a voiceover and she says, nothing is evil in the beginning. Now I'm going to read another passage that is not from the show. No being can be spoken of as evil, formally as being, but only insofar as it lacks being. Thus a man is said to be evil because he lacks some virtue. That's Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologiae. (laughs) Do you think that they consulted like some philosophers knowing that Tolkien like obviously has a like rich theological background? background? I, I don't know. I don't want to say they explicitly did. Maybe they just read all of Tolkien and they thought about it long enough that whatever was baked into Tolkien just seeped into them by mitosis. I don't know. I don't think that's the right word. Osmosis. Osmosis. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Look, I said I was going to do theology, not biology. (laughs) Osmosis. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. No problem. So, okay, that's one summa possible citation. Interesting. When Galadriel is trying to get her little swan boat to float, her brother, Finrod, talks to her about this seemingly unrelated thing. He's sort of talking about deciding between right and wrong. And he uses this example, you know, why a ship floats and a stone cannot. Because the stone sees only downward. The darkness of the water is vast irresistible. The ship feels the darkness as well, striving moment by moment to master her and pull her under. But the ship has a secret. For unlike the stone, her gaze is not downward but up, fixed upon the light that guides her, whispering of grander things than darkness ever knew. So that's Finrod in that little ship example. Now I'm going to read another part of the Summa. Man has free will, otherwise counsels, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards, and punishments would be in vain. In order to make this evident, we must observe that some things act without judgment as a stone moves downwards, and in like manner all things which lack knowledge. But man acts from judgment. This is the grander thing, the stars. Because by his apprehensive power he judges that some things should be avoided or sought. That's the second parallel to the Summa. I'm going to go through these rapid fire, Carrie. You just jump in whenever you want. Okay. (laughs) And then Child Galadriel responds to Finrod. You meant to think this is a very profound thought, and this little kid is supposed to say, ah, good point. And she takes a minute to think about it and immediately has a question. And she says, But sometimes the lights shine just as brightly reflected in the water as they do in the sky. It's hard to say which way is up and which way is down. 
How am I to know which lies to follow? And I think this specific line is like the question that the whole entire season in her arc is trying to work out. This difficulty of telling the difference between right and wrong. Luckily, Aquinas still has considered this question. This is in the same passage as the previous one where Aquinas mentions the stone. But because the judgment in the case of some particular act is not from a natural instinct, but from some act of comparison of reason, think of the reason comparing the stars with the reflection of the stars, that's an act of comparison and reason. Therefore, he acts from free judgment and retains the power of inclining to various things. For reason in contingent matters may follow opposite courses. For as much as man is rational, is it necessary that man have a free will? By virtue of the fact that you can see the stars doesn't mean that you always know, necessarily know how to, you, how to get to the stars. The will can tend to nothing except under the aspect of good. But because good is of many kinds, for this reason the will is not of necessity determined to one. I think, yes, you have. I'm very uh, impressed by your analogizing to the Suma. Kara, I got more in the tank. <laughs> well, so here's... My like instinctual reaction is that this sort of speaks to like natural law in a way, right? Like, and I think you're right about like if somebody is reading The Lord of the Rings kind of like with the lens that I think Tolkien would have us put on to read it, I think that you would have to end up putting on that same mantle, which like because – Tolkien was deeply Catholic is going to be imbued in his thinking, whether or not it's like explicitly touristic. He's not intentionally trying to teach you the Summa, right? He's not trying to teach you about the thought of Thomas Aquinas. It's just flowing out naturally. Yeah. So in light of all of this, what are your thoughts about what is eventually revealed to be her brother's ultimate advice about sometimes you need to touch the darkness? Great. I'm glad you asked. That's the next thing I have. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, we did not plan this. I promise. This is good for us. Just playing me like a fiddle here today. (laughs) So 30 seconds after Finrod says that, you see him like getting ready to go into this disastrous war in Middle Earth. So I don't think Finrod's supposed to be like a totally reliable authority on this, which Aquinas talks about. Oh, okay. Later on in the Summa. He talks about how prudence consists in a right estimate about matters of action. Now, a right estimate or opinion is acquired in two ways, both in practical and spectacle matters. First, by discovering it oneself, and secondly, by learning it from others. So the others would be Finrod. Now, just as docility consists in a man being well disposed to acquire a right opinion from another man, Finrod, so shrewdness is an apt disposition to acquire a right estimate by oneself. Galadriel needs to learn shrewdness, because what Finrod tells her at the end of that discussion... But you must learn to discern them for yourself. I won't always be here to speak them to you. You won't? You can't just rely on Finrod to tell you how to live your life, because he doesn't necessarily know best, and you need to develop shrewdness to be able to discern for yourself, which Galadriel, as we see for most of the rest of the season, doesn't necessarily have. (laughs) Maybe as much as we would like. It's interesting you say that, because I felt like the last episode is... Sort of, not so much that she didn't have shrewdness before, but it feels like it's more calling out the fact that because of her sort of willful blindness, she had put it aside. And it wasn't until then she was like, wait a second. 
I don't want to say that she's like put down her hatred. I mean, obviously not, but I feel like she's chastised a bit by the experience of leading Numenor into battle and having them really get destroyed. I think it's symbolically significant that she carries her brother's dagger with Mm. her the whole season and she lets it go at the end of the season and lets it be melted down to forge the Mm -hmm. three rings. Other people have tried to take this dagger from her before and she's held on to it. Mm. And as this thing that sort of represents not shrewdness, (laughs) but sort of represents that militant sort of impulse and that's kind of the side of her that she's been that she's been feeding and not paying attention to like you're saying that other side and she doesn't let it go but it's not totally gone because it's still mm-hmm. in those rings so it's still pernicious it's still hanging around there's more symbolism here kara that is deeply intertwined with what tolkien wrote go for it i don't think we have time to go into it <laughs> It's important that Galadriel is making a little bird boat that looks sort of like a swan boat, Mm -hmm. and it's not going to float. It's going to sail because, you know, it's caught by the wind, and birds are more associated with being moved by the wind rather than being buoyant, even though swans can be both. But swan boats are a real thing in Tolkien. (laughs) They're there at the beginning, and they're there at the end. So her mother is from a part of the West where they build swan boats, and those elves, spoiler alert for the Silmarillion, are killed by other elves who want those boats so they can go to wage the war in Middle-earth, and they need boats to get there. Mm, interesting. It's called the first kinslaying. Way later, in The Fellowship of the Ring, the actual book, Bilbo is singing this song about this historical figure who's actually Elrond's dad. Hey, Arendil was a mariner, blah, blah, blah. He built a boat of timber felled. Her prow was fashioned like a swan and light upon her banners laid. A guy we're going to see in season two builds ships. Another elf, his name is Kierden, nicknamed the shipwright, helped Eärendil build that boat. We're not going to see it in the show, but he also builds a lot of other boats to help other elves to go back into the West. Like we were talking Mm. about that going into the West scene, that like beatific vision kind of thing where the clouds part and you hear the music that starts out in the soundtrack and it goes from there and enters into the story and the elf characters start singing it themselves because it's like written on their hearts. that they are in is a swan boat and this is what Galadriel decides to turn her back on like I'm not ready for that I got other things to do in Middle Earth none of this beatific vision stuff although I did I appreciated she was talking to Elrond about how she said she didn't feel worthy to go yet my initial reaction was like well that's a creative rewriting of your motivations but (laughs) but it's true like she's not ready in the sense that we need purgatory before we get into heaven because there's other stuff we need to work out first. That's kind of where she's at. Yeah, I think I think it's showing, I mean, kind of what they say in the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Like she is like a seer of men's hearts. And I feel like this is the first sort of glimpse you get at like future Galadriel that she like knows her own heart. And she's like, I'm not 
there yet. Exactly. Like, aside from the fact that I like am holding on to all of this baggage that I can't let go of, but like that is you're right. Like you cannot enter heaven with that. And you can see this in Fellowship of the Ring later on when they're in Lorien and the Fellowship is visiting much older Galadriel. This is from the book. Aragorn stayed his boat as the swan ship drew alongside, and the lady, that's Galadriel, and her song greeted them, we have come to bear our last farewell, to speed you with blessings from our land. So the swan ships are showing up at the very end as well, and she's ready to go home into the west. And at the end of Return of the King, the ship that she does take into the west with Bilbo and Frodo and Gandalf is a swan boat, which Tolkien doesn't come right out and say in the book, he just says it's a white ship, but... Peter Jackson sort of took liberty and made it another swan boat. This is a, the completion of the swan symbol. Apparently, so the the three elven rings that you see created, in the end, Gandalf actually has one. And apparently he's yep. wearing it when he gets on the boat at the end. Like you can, and which I never noticed, but now that I know, I was like, oh, that's super cool. That's like a fun little tying in. There's a whole rabbit hole you could go down about Gandalf wearing the ring the whole time, and he's just concealing it so that it's invisible, and then he can wear it openly when Sauron has been destroyed. Interesting. Also in Lorien, Galadriel has Frodo look into a mirror and look at a reflection of the stars in water, which is like a version of the analogy she's wrestling with as a kid. What really clued me into Halbrand's true identity was this whole I can't tell the difference between the reflection of the stars in the water or is the darkness concealing itself. And as soon as Halbrand shows up, they meet on the water and he says, Looks can be deceiving. And that whole sequence where you can't tell the difference between the sea monster and the raft through the mist, like appearances are deceiving. And everything he says all these has all these little double meetings that are possible. Like, my people have no king. Is that because he's like an aimless human or because he's a fallen angel and doesn't have a people? <laughs> you didn't cause my suffering. You can't fix it no matter how strong your will or your pride. She didn't cause his suffering because he's causing his own suffering mm-hmm. because he's Sauron. I think they do a nice job with all of that. I genuinely, as someone who didn't know what was going on and looking back, I was like, I think they did a good job of like, they, if you know, it all like makes sense, but it's also not obvious yeah. to you as like somebody who doesn't know. Now we can switch over to Gandalf. The stranger. I'm sorry. <laughs> the stranger and the Harfoot. Now, I was genuinely surprised about Sauron, but I did call that this guy was uh, going to be a wizard as nice. soon as he showed up. <laughs> <laughs> they really tried to make it seem like it was possible that he was going to be evil. And he's not necessarily Gandalf. He could be one of the other wizards. But sure looks that way that he's going to be Gandalf. Yeah. And not evil. <laughs> The thing that made it, like, it would be kind of funny if he's not Gandalf, just because Gandalf has this long history with the Hobbits, and my understanding is that the Harfoots are, like, a predecessor race of the Hobbits, and so it would make sense of, like, why Gandalf is the only wizard who's tight with the Hobbits. You guys go way back. (laughs) And that storyline was definitely not the best storyline of the season, but I like the performers they got for the Hobbits. They felt very hobbity in the way they spoke. And the whole notion of migration and integrating a stranger into their caravan felt like a kind of a precursor to their appreciation of home Mm -hmm. and hospitality and their disposition towards entering into a fellowship. I agree that like it wasn't the most interesting. It felt like they could have used a lot less screen time, in my opinion. Yeah. Because I feel like the point that they're getting across is like, 
Nori is this sort of proto Baggins, basically, right? Like, yeah, right. she's got this desire <laughs> yeah. for adventure and sort of, uh, we're recreating the Gandalf Baggins vibe. I mean, it's basically like the whole point is to like get them to go on an adventure. I'm like, okay, I, I, <laughs> I was like, there's a lot of screen time for that to for that to basically be like the end point. Yeah, they could have done it in less time, but I can give them credit for some of it. So when they're talking about whether or not they should keep moving and keep surviving, and Nori Proto Baggins Harfoot is saying we need friends in this world. Just me. He's my friend. We don't need friends, girl. We need to survive. Without friends, what are we surviving for? And that really stuck out as something Aristotle would say, specifically in Book 8 of the Nicomachean Ethics, when he says, without friends, no one would choose to live, though he had all other goods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No so bad. I'm not saying they read Aristotle and they were trying to shoehorn it in, but if they did, they could have. There. So in episode four, we get to know Numenor as this very high island kingdom of humans that Galadriel has some familiarity with, but she's reminding them of a path they've abandoned, where they were previously friendly with the elves and faithful to the Valar, who are sort of like the junior gods slash angels of this world under the one Eru Iluvatar who actually gets mentioned later in this season. Mm. He never gets mentioned explicitly in Lord of the Rings. He's always in the background. But this Numenor has sort of turned away from that path. And they're a little bit more independent Mm. and maybe xenophobic almost. They're certainly, uh, we'll call them what would be an analogous post-Christian. They're post-modern. They're kind of like... Russia? No, they're not that bad. The populace is like explicitly anti-religious, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's aside from the Valar, they are very explicitly like anti-elf and essentially, yeah, like deterministic about their own fate and like refuse to acknowledge that there might be a higher power that they are responsible to. Which is difficult for the ailing elderly king, Tar Palantir. And his daughter, the Queen Regent, Tarmiriel, who's effectively ruling in his stead because he's not really able to be king anymore. They're in a tough spot because they're trying to quell the people's rumblings along the lines of what you just said, even though they themselves are sympathetic to the group called the Faithful, which is something Tolkien discusses in way more depth in the later part of the published Silmarillion. And they are what they sound like, trying to remain faithful to the Valar who gifted them this island. The Valar gifted us this isle in a day of virtue. They can take it away, should we turn to the paths of darkness. Which jumped out to me and sounded like it was torn straight from the book of Job. 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in that same discussion, Muriel is expressing her fear about what might happen if Numenor continues down the path that it's going. And Galadriel says, I beg of you, Muriel. Choose not the path of fear, but that of faith. Which sounded like Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be anxious, I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. I can't believe Amazon is putting on this billion dollar show that's talking about faith. <laughs> I'm still surprised talking about it now. My my like two cents on it is that like it's easy enough to ignore the parallels when you're like, oh, it's all you know, a story. But I think for anybody who does have faith, I mean, this is where, like, I think Tolkien's deep 
faith of his own just becomes so apparent because it's like, as we've said, he's very adamant that this is not an allegory, but right. I think we talked about this in, in another episode about world building. And, you know, I think Lord of the Rings, Star Wars and Harry Potter are probably like three of the most recent and certainly like cinematic examples where the world is so totally thought through that and part of the reason why it's so believable is because it has its own logic that mirrors the things that are most essential about our own world and you know i think that tolkien having this rich backstory it's like how could it not have a flavor of the reality of of our relationship with god yeah, and there's more flavor in the dwarf plotline in the episode with Elrond's friend during the fourth, who's arguing with his father during the third, the king of Khazad-dûm, whether or not they should let the elves in on their discovery of Mithril, and whether or not they should continue mining Mithril, even though it's dangerous. So he's having this disagreement, and his father's trying to be cautious, saying, no, we need to shut it down, and things kind of get it out of, get out of hand. And during the fourth, the son says... Forgive me, Father. I was proud and stubborn, and I was wrong. And his father says later in the discussion, Forever am I with you, my son. He's saying, you kind of got your angry streak from me. <laughs> Honestly, it sounded like they were remixing the parable of the prodigal son. Because mm. in Luke 15, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And a little bit later, the father responds, my son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with this, huh? So a question on that line then. I mean, at the end of the series of the first season, we see that Durin is essentially, I don't know if he's splitting with his father, but like his pride gets the better of him. Him and his wife, you know, they're basically like, we are going to be the ones who are running this kingdom. Do you think that Durin's character arc is an even bigger meta prodigal son character arc because he's going to essentially, we assume, like, we know that they have Mithril. Like, we know that this is an element that exists further down the line. So we have to assume that he does go forward with doing some mining. I'm curious where you think it's going. I think ultimately Durin is hitting some of the prodigal son notes, but he might not end up as well as the prodigal son did. For what you just said, eventually his father's going to die and he's going to become king. And I'm assuming he's going to disregard where his father was coming from. Yeah, especially because you see Balrog at the bottom of the pit of Mithril. Yeah, that was totally unnecessary. So <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why is that unnecessary? Because the Balrog doesn't show up for like another 2,000 years. Oh, really? Is that in the books? Yeah. So that was that's interesting because we were talking about my husband and I were talking about this quite a bit actually about the like it's interesting to hear like that's what's going on because we were talking a lot about timeline even about the Balrog showing up when in the Fellowship of the Ring when they go to Casa Doom like they or what's it called in the Moria yeah in the mines of Moria when they go there like Gimli is expecting them to all be there that's like a resettlement. So the Balrog awakens, destroys the kingdom. It's in darkness for years and years. And then there's like a dwarf expeditionary force that resettles it. So that's what Gimli's expecting to see. Oh, interesting. Back to back to Durin and the, 
the actual storyline. So I got prodigal son notes from Durin. At one point when they think they're going to send Galadriel away from Numenor, we meet Elendil, Aragorn's ancestor, and she's sort of reminding him of the way of the faithful. And he says to her, in what is basically a forbidden dead language as far as the men of Numenor are concerned, he speaks in Elvish Quenya, he says, go in peace. <laughs> Ring any bells for you? I did notice that too. I was like, oh, okay, that's... <laughs> and then when Muriel, the queen regent, is trying to convince the Numenorians to create this military expeditionary force to go to Middle-earth and resist the orcs and resist Sauron. She's sort of encouraging them to do something that they haven't done in a long time, work with elves. And what she says is, Are our hearts become as the statues that surround our eye? Or do they yet beat with the blood of the heroes that carved them? There's a line in Ezekiel 3626 that sounds suspiciously similar, Kara. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is that's that's your most stretchy one, but I'm just saying. I'll give it to you. It's pretty good. <laughs> On this note, I found I haven't really thought about this. This is only just occurring to me. So, you know, give me a little bit of rope to hang myself with. Yep. But Please do. You give me plenty, so <laughs> the character arc of Mariel is interesting. Just the fact that she goes from being extremely closed off and hostile, and you would think that she's not a believer based on the beginning, and then she kind of does this about face, and I think it's most evident in the last episode when she is essentially like committing to go back to Middle Earth, even when is it a yeah even when Elendil is like you know obviously very bitter about losing his son. Who's MIA? We don't know what happened to his son, Isildur. We know, we know he's not dead. <laughs> we know better than Elendil. She seems, you know, extra determined to go back and like face evil. I thought it was a little jarring. She was probably one of the less well written character arcs, in my opinion. You know, we were saying they spent too much time with the Harfoots. I wish they had spent more time with Muriel and Numenor. Yeah, I agree. And she has to play things very close to the vest because her subjects are unstable and they're not totally on board, certainly not on board with their father ruling things. Like they sort of ousted him from power because he was faithful. They became strident, claiming that we provoked the anger of the Valar and must repent and return to the old ways. And she was seen as sort of the compromised candidate. They didn't even have to necessarily choose her. They might have rejected the rule of that line of kings and queens altogether. So she's in a tough spot because she has to sort of maintain as much as she can of the common ground she has with her father in the ways of the faithful while still keeping the peace, so to speak. Mm. You know, she sees at the beginning that the tree from the Valar are di is dying. Yeah, it's shedding its petals. And that's the moment where she has this look with Elendil like, we both know what that means because we're both faithful yeah. and it's not good. I guess they maybe play her a little like too close to the vest at the beginning. I just feel like her transformation is a little jarring given that yeah. she seems to know what is going on. And then the, I guess the, the other thing I found a little like frustrating about the Numenorean storyline was the like politician. What's his name? Um, Farazan. Yeah. He's also very two-faced or like, like one minute he's basically like inciting a riot 
And then the next, she's like, I'll help the queen. We're all going to do whatever she tells us to do. <laughs> like, who are you? I don't think he's inciting a riot. I think he's trying to channel it for his own purposes. Mm. Like, not yet, guys. I feel like that's the thing. It's like, what are his purposes? I mean, he's obviously a shady character. He's a Numenor first guy. He's got all the insignia of all the different guilds. Mm. He's shaking hands with all the right people. He's got the constituents all lined up. He's just biding his time. He's the, he's the ultimate politician as opposed to like the sovereign who has to actually do what's like the best thing for the people. Yeah. My father once told me that the way of the faithful is committing to pay the price. Even if the cost cannot be known. And trusting that in the end it will be worth it. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I wish that they had spent some more time in Numenor. And maybe in season two, we will. Because I, think I so. feel like Numenor is just interesting in terms of like the story of the human heart. Certainly more interesting than like what's happening in the Southlands. <laughs> There's a lot of really good stuff of struggling with mortality that gets presented in a way that's really interesting. Because unlike a lot of other mortality struggles, which is not uncommon in these kinds of stories, but there aren't usually, like there are here, elves right there who are not going to die, putting them in painful contrast. <laughs> yeah, sort of reminding you. But here the Numenorians have that, and Galadriel's presence sort of aggravates that concern. Because they're seeing their king who they didn't like, but they're seeing him die, and they know that mm. it doesn't have to be this way. In general, it's kind of this interesting painting of the downfall of man and sinfulness in general. I feel like the reason why I got a little taken in, we'll say, by the Halbrand narrative is because I think that you're always like, you want that person who inspires the people to be what they should be, which is rejecting of sin. Are you holding out for a hero, Kara? Should we start singing Bonnie oh Tyler? <laughs> I am. I am. <laughs> But I feel like that's the natural, like, not to say that, you know, you we require a narrative savior, but I mean, I think that's the, you know, Aragorn, and that's his big struggle too, right? Like, you you do need leadership, and you you need the pathway to repentance and to be shown, like, the straight and narrow way, especially because it's harder. And I feel like you can just feel the lack of that in both the Southlands and in Numenor. And I think that's kind of why, why like not seeing more of the queen is disappointing because you feel like she kind of steps into a like moral leadership role at the end, but you haven't necessarily like, and it doesn't feel super genuine because of like the way that she's portrayed through this season. At least to me, it didn't feel. I think the, Tree shedding petals is meant to be a kind of switch flipping where finally you know what her real intentions are and that she's not able to advertise them to everybody. Like really by the end of the show, the only one that she trusts is Elendil. Yet there's a lot of cool, interesting stuff in Numenor that they didn't have a chance to go into that maybe they should have, maybe they will, that Tolkien covered in one of his more important letters, like the three main themes of his work, the fall, mortality, and the machine. The machine being kind of a loose term for how we seek to control the world when we're confronted with mortality, which is what the rings are and is what the Numenorians are about to attempt. Yeah, it's interesting too, just on that like mortality thing, we haven't talked really about Elrond and his storyline. But I mean, that's not necessarily Elrond's 
primary concern, but certainly Gilgalad, the High King of the Elves. It's very much a, you know, a storyline about mortality. And I wouldn't say that they're trying to cheat it, but, you know, they see a very physical representation of their decline. And, you know, he feels a responsibility to do whatever he can to save them. It was interesting how he phrased that indication of their decline, because he talked about the tree in Gilgalad's kingdom, which has this corruption, this black root that's growing over it, right? And he says... It's not causing our decline that's going to choose us between either fading here or going into the West. The blight upon this tree is but an outer manifestation of an inner reality. Did that sound at all like St. Augustine describing the sacraments to you? <laughs> an outward sign of an inner reality instituted by Christ to give grace? I gotta say, I uh, wouldn't have caught it from him because I spent almost the entire season being like, is Gilgalad just like a bad dude? They're so ambiguous with the royalty. He's very duplicitous. Yeah. He and Muriel, they're deep down good people, but it's so hard to tell because of how they communicate. Yeah, completely. Well, and Gilgalad does his weird, sorry, is it Gilgalad? I don't even know. Yeah. I don't know where the emphasis goes. You could say either one. Yeah. Just as long as you're not saying Jill Jalad. (laughs) No, I don't think gifs either. They're gifs. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. So Gilgalad, I think they kind of set him up as just being nefarious because of the way that he like shuns Galadriel and like gets her out of the way and he's like oh well I thought that if we if we sent her off to the west it would help I was like that's a little that's a little I don't know how to feel about that one yeah and he's so cryptic about but he admits he was wrong by the end that's true I'm pro Gilgalad going forward okay part of my impression probably because of your experience with Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings you kind of get the sense that like the elves are all like deeply good. And I felt like their goodness was much more mixed in this. It took some reorienting because like Cella Bremborn, I'm like, this guy is shady. He's like, hey, kids, you want to see what I've been working on in my garage? It's cool. <laughs> I promise. Yeah. I'm like this guy, this guy is not to be trusted. From this point onward, he's probably the most morally ambiguous figure among the elves. There are definitely some people earlier on in the age before this one, but from here on out, he's like the guy who's most likely to be a problem child. I mean, it's clear that it's because he has so much pride. And I think that they do hint at the pride of the elves in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You know, in a separate scene, you kind of see Galadriel talk to this idea, but she's not talking to other elves. She's talking to Isildur. And her time with the humans is sort of reminding her the importance of humility and to be on guard against pride. I thought this was some of her best dialogue in this conversation with Isildur when they're on their way from Numenor to Middle-earth on the ship. And Isildur is sort of feeling bad about himself because he's a lowly stable sweep. And he's kind of a screw-up at this point. And she tells him, Despise not the labor which humbles the heart. Humility has saved entire kingdoms the proud of all but led to ruin. So the pridefulness of the elves is something she's been ensconced in for a while. And seeing the humans again and talking to them, she remembers, oh, right. (laughs) And you start to see her come around a little bit, which she does more later. Because when Mount Doom erupts and Galadriel has that really striking moment where she's just looking at this erupting volcano, I think that's when her switch flips and that militaristic mindset sort of dies in her. 
because she thought she was doing the right thing. And look at this cataclysm that happened anyway. Mm. And I don't think it's a coincidence that shortly after that scene, she opens up about her husband who's gone missing. Who up until this point, she hasn't mentioned at all. That was the most jarring one for me. That That's the one that set me down like the deepest wiki hole. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> like, hold on a second. Like, who's the dude in The Lord of the Rings who's with her? Is that, like, not her husband? Yeah. Spoiler alert, it is. <laughs> Little does Galadriel know her husband is not dead, but is somewhere else in Middle-earth. Regarding not knowing where the journey is going, we know where the journey is going to end up and they don't. And I think they use that theme to their advantage a little bit. So hopefully Galadriel does find her husband and they get reunited mm. and they have a restored happy marriage. So there's this bit about the journey that I think is very interesting, and I think it impacts all of the characters, but it comes up mostly with the Harfoots, who are migratory people. There's this one scene where Nori is sort of down in the dumps, and they're resting from their migration, and she's fixing the wheels on the cart. She's like sending them off or something so they're more round. Except the wheels don't look like the cart wheels that we've seen, which are sort of these hoops that are hollow on the inside. They have spokes. The wheels she's working on are solid, like they're discs, and they look like they're kind of constructed in the same way as the doors on hobbit holes will eventually be, like the round circular doors. You know, they're solid wood. And I think that's intentional. I think it's supposed to show mm. us that the destination is foreshadowed in the journey, but in a way that Nori doesn't understand and is not capable of seeing. And mm. I especially think this is important for the song, which is the part I want to most intentionally want to read into and try and project meaning whether or not the writers intended it. So the song, This Wandering Day, which is in episode five, it's like this montage song, which is original to the show. But I think it's supposed to evoke some of the songs that Tolkien wrote lyrics for in the books. The lyrics of that song are really telling. And I think the context is really interesting too, because in the Silmarillion, the world as a whole is like sung into existence partially by the Valar working under the one. So music has this very important role in creation. And during the events of the show, the Valar live in the West. It's where we see Galadriel almost go and then the clouds part. And the Harfoots really don't have any conception of this, but they're singing this wandering day and they start out far to the east. When we see them in The Lord of the Rings, they will eventually move a little bit further in the west. The Shire is further west of where they currently are when they settled centuries or millennia later. But this kind of general westward movement continues, and it's nev never really completed until the very end of The Lord of the Rings when Frodo sails to the west, where the Valar are, with Bilbo and Galadriel and Gandalf in the Undying Lands. So the lyrics of this wandering day the song they're singing while they're still migrating and eventually going to go west ties into that. But the path demands, yes, my legs are so short and the way is so long. I've no rest nor comfort, no comfort but song. Sing to me, sing to me, lands These aren't just any lands, but specifically, whether the Harfoots know it or not, 
the lands of the West, home of the powers whose singing played such a pivotal role in their creation, in their existence. And on top of that, Kara, the note accompanying the lyric lands in the song is the highest note in the song. The movement westward along with the importance of music symbolizes the active role of hope in reaching the destination in the midst of all the pain and suffering. <laughs> I will admit to not being the kind of person who like reads into musical lyrics a lot. Really? But <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll give you this one too. My skeptic eyes are... <laughs> <laughs> You're being merciful. I appreciate it. So here's what what struck me. I think that you're right about this sort of like, they clearly have a framework in Middle Earth that the more you move to the West, the closer you are to heaven. It's sort of the language of this story. Yeah, We're not meant to apply that so literally. No, no. Yeah, exactly. In, in Middle Earth, yeah. there's like clearly a, the further East you go, the more you are in peril, as they say. Yeah, right. And then the further west you go, the more security and like peace and closer you are to Eru. So I feel like that that part of it feels right. And I think it's significant that the first lyric of the song is the sun is fast falling. And the last shot you see in the montage is the stranger who Mm. we find out is a wizard. The wizards have come from the west to help out the people of Middle Earth. And he's looking up at the moon. And in the mythology of Middle-earth, the sun and moon are piloted by deities from the West. So the fact that you begin with the sun, you end with the moon, and the stranger, all three of which are helps from the West, seems like it might be important too. Mm. Yeah, good symbolism. So speaking of like moving West and closer or further away from evil, do you want to talk about the people of the Southlands at all? No. Not really. Did you have stuff you wanted to say about them? No, not really. (laughs) There's another one where I was like, less screen time would have been better. Yeah. There's this whole other storyline we're not going to talk about. It's not that important. It's fine. It's just what Mordor was before Dor, as the fans were calling it. (laughs) Well, I think we need to be sailing into the West, Kara. The sun is fast fallen, as the Harfoots would say. We'll eventually come back to season two when it comes out a year or more from now. But in the meantime, thanks for doing this extremely deep dive into the Rings of Power season one. Thanks for having me. And uh, I guess indulging all of my random takes on Rings of Power. This is surprisingly enjoyable. It felt like you were indulging me. So that's a good thing. (laughs) Oh, good. All right. See you later, good friend. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now. And God love you. At last comes their answer Through cold and through frost That not all who 